This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, it wasn't really a big surprise. We Charity announced late yesterday that it is closing its Canadian operations. This in the wake of the scandal over its sole-sourced government contract for that program worth nearly half a billion dollars, not to mention other financial problems, some long-standing, some related to the pandemic. The shutdown, though, hasn't put an end to the troubling questions surrounding all of this, both for the government and for the charity itself. The founders, the Kielberger brothers, say they'll be selling their real estate assets and creating an endowment to fund some of the charity's work. So those assets and the relationship to other we-related entities are also a source of controversy. And there's also the question of what will become of their operations in the U.S. Is it possible that COVID-19 impacted their Canadian operations and not those south of the border? What do you think of all of those things? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Right now, let's go to Kate Bain, the Managing Director at Charity Intelligence in Toronto. Mark Bloomberg, partner with Bloomberg Siegel LLP, specializes in Nonprofit and charity law, and Charlie Angus, NDP MP and ethics critic. Thank you all for joining us. Hello. Hi. Great, great to be on. Great. Let's start with Charlie Angus. So, your reaction to this, and does this help the government? Does this shut down some of the questions? I don't. I'm not surprised that the Kielbergers made this move uh, when they came to committee. We had a sense that this was a group that was in financial freefall because of COVID, because uh, they seemed to have expanded massively in real estate and they were having difficulty uh, making payments. And so the whole issue and the scandal really began to look like they were calling in their political chits uh, to key ministers like Minister Chagger, uh, Minister Ning, Minister Qualtro, Minister Morneau. They had deep, deep uh, connections. The issue doesn't go away, though, because how is it that a group that was so closely tied to the Liberal government and the Trudeau family got to the front of the line, got the inside track on this deal that went so badly, uh, it fell apart the second the media began asking questions. So we have a lot of questions on the political end, but I also think what we've learned from the Kielbergers is you know, appearances are not always as they seem. So last night we heard they were shutting down their charity operation, but now I'm saying, well, what about their for-profit? What else? They've, they've put themselves in the political picture here that they weren't in before, so there's a lot of scrutiny and deserved questions that need to be asked. Yeah, let's bring in Mark Bloomberg. Lots of questions. One of the key questions, what's the relationship of the for-profit arm and the not-for-profit arm? And they're going to be selling those real estate assets. Is is there any way that the for-profit can get their hands on some of that? I mean, it's it's apparently worth 45 million bucks. 
Right. Well, if uh, there's $45 million in real estate that is in a registered charity, then the normal rules that apply to a charity as to how those funds need to be spent uh, should apply. Um, the problem with this is that the for-profits, of which there are a number of them, um, we have very little visibility, there's very little transparency, so we have no idea what real estate they may have, um, how valuable their assets are, and because of the very close relationship between the charity and the for-profit, and often it wasn't clear where one began and one ended, um, there will be obviously lots of uh, questions about that. Um, but uh, basically, uh, right now, it was um, probably inevitable that they would have to make some announcement. Um, but there's so little information being provided. They talked about setting up an endowment, not clear who's going to be running it, um, who's going to have power over it, um, how quickly it's going to spend out the money, and things like that. So right now, I would just say that um, we know very little, except that obviously they're trying to uh, distract from the sort of narrative that's been going on for the last two months. And, uh, you know, because after all, if they're shutting down, then, you know, maybe we don't need to look at this anymore. But in reality, um, we have no idea. And you're going to have potentially um, a couple of people uh, controlling a part of 20 or $30 million that'll be in cash, which is even um, easier to misuse in a way than if it was real estate, where it's a little bit harder to, uh, to deal with. So I think, in fact, the number of questions is going to uh, increase or continue as to what exactly is going on with the organization and what has been done in the past. Kate Bain, uh, one of the most troubling things in the whole episode was that the government seemed completely unaware that their entire Canadian board of directors uh, was gone. And we had the spectacle of the former board chairman saying that she couldn't really see with any clarity what was going on with the charities. And she relayed that the founders asked for her resignation. Well, the way that board uh, charity governance is supposed to go, the, the chairman of the board is supposed to be in charge. And there's this very well-known thing, uh, founder syndrome. It's not the founders that are supposed to be in charge. Yeah, and, and to charity intelligence, that was the, the sort of ultimate when we came out with our donor advisory. Who is the management here? Where does the buck stop? Because you're exactly right, Libby, it's got to be the board of directors. That is where fiduciary responsibility stands. And as Charlie Angus noted with the uh, lobby directory, these guys were flying under the radar. They go by the title of co-founder. So they're not staff. They're not directors. And from an auditor's point of view, any transactions when you're looking at the audited financial statements, any transactions when you're looking at all of these multiple entities... If money is paid to Craig or Mark or any of their family, it doesn't need to be reported because they, the auditors don't have a box to tick for co-founders. They must report any transactions involving uh, key officers and staff and directors. But as a co-founder, that's a loophole that we thought was uh, critical and needs to be closed. Craig and Mark serve on the boards of other charities and other corporations but here for the charity that they had founded and was their baby for 25 years, they were not directors. And that was a red flag to us. Hmm. Uh, Mark, uh, would you like to w weigh in on that? Do you think that uh, uh, is that a big problem? Well, I think that um, I would say that since about 2010, 
and the Globe and Mail did a very large article on the organization. Uh, anyone who wanted to do research would have seen that there were some significant concerns and issues. So it's, you know, not since the creation of the organization in the beginning, but since at least that point, um, there were some concerns with uh, what was uh, happening. And um, the problem, and I think Kate would agree that, um, you know, we don't have enough transparency when it comes to charity. Um, a lot of things are, you know, optional or whatever. And uh, people are giving freely of their own money to charities. Uh, governments are giving large amounts of money to charity. And we need to have more transparency um, as to what charities are doing. And the vast majority of charities are very transparent, do a lot more than perhaps is legally even required and things like that. But if you want to, um, you know, essentially get away with providing very little information on your operations and stuff, we, we make it quite easy in Canada to do that. Um, if you just look at the U.S. returns, they're so much more detailed. And I'm not even suggesting we go down that path um, in terms of being as complicated as the U.S. situation. But certainly, I would think that we can do a better job and ask certain questions. And it's not just on these issues, but um, we ask no questions on the annual return about, for example, how many volunteers a group has or what their value is. We, uh, we don't ask about affiliated corporations and their uh, financial situation. Uh, we don't ask about um, restricted funds. There's just so many questions and things that it would be nice if people could just easily find this information so it doesn't have to be investigative reporters always uh, uh, having to ask questions and then sometimes achieving nothing. Charlie Angus, is is this a situation where uh, so many people, politicians, wanted that kind of sheen of, of celebrity? The the uh, it seems to me that the whole thing turned on this kind of celebrity buy-in. Well, I think that's a really important point, and it shows how sophisticated their operation was in terms of uh, embedding themselves. Uh, deeply within existing government and very much curating uh, a relationship with all the people that they needed. Um, and, you know, so when I heard Mark Kielberger again last night repeat the same falsehood that they said at our committee about how, you know, they they should never have answered Canada's call for help. And perhaps they were just politically naive and dealing, you know, they, they couldn't deal with this firestorm. The reality was is that all the key people that they needed when they were facing fi deep financial trouble. Minister Chagger, she had uh, spoken at a WE event. Minister Qualtro spoke at a WE event. Um, Minister uh, Morneau, uh, they were flying him around the world. The Prime Minister's wife worked for, was uh, a WE ambassador. His mother and brother getting paid upwards of $500,000 after he becomes Prime Minister. And not because Margaret Trudeau is a respected um, mental health speaker, but because they were using the Trudeau family to do the corporate smoothing afterwards. So they were, they had created this, uh, I think, very unhealthy relationship. So when they were in financial trouble, and they call Minister Chagger, she thinks it's perfectly natural to talk to them and give them the advice. Minister Qualtrough, same thing. They were excited to talk to them. Uh, the whole line that Bill Morneau was besties with them is really telling. So they were able to fly under the radar. So they didn't think they needed to do something as mundane as register in the lobbying act. But every other charity I know registers, and, and none of the charities I know get the kind of money that these guys were getting. Hmm. Yep. I'm going to take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Good morning. Good afternoon. I totally agree that, you know, we have only seen the tip of the iceberg here. 
I think there are many questionable things that have probably gone on. Um, and I would comment that the annual uh, uh, return for a charity, because I am a tax person, is so uh, simple that there's no way that anybody could figure out what was going on with an organization like this. So I would just say stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more coming out out of this over time. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. We will stay tuned. Um, So here's a question that I have maybe for Kate. There's no word that they're shutting down their U.S. entity. So uh, they said they're setting up an endowment, but is there some way they can transfer their uh, assets or, or, or the proceeds of the sale to the U.S. entity where presumably they're not really under very much scrutiny? If I can just also answer Pat's question, if you actually do look at the annual returns that We Charity Foundation filed, they forgot to disclose important information about the arm's length nature of their directors. So even when you do file um, and you do read the annual filings, there are inconsistencies there. Um, I would not recommend that for We Charity because the regulatory environment in the state of New York with the IRS takes these kinds of situations much more seriously. And if you look at how the US, uh, the, the New York Attorney General is investigating the NRA um, and you're looking at you know time served, uh, I would think it would be pretty foolhardy to move out of a kind of cozy regulatory environment like Canada and move your assets into New York State where you would might get you, you, you definitely wouldn't have the same uh, political friendship that you that you benefit from in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie Angus, uh, do we have to do something to tighten up the rules for charities? Well, I think uh, there's the questions on charities, and you know, my daughter was working for one and uh, told me, you know, they, they, the issue of political, how much political engagement um, they pay very, very close attention to. But again, because we had a for-profit wing. Um, they were they were able to make the calls into senior ministers. I mean, no offense to Minister Qualtrough, I think she's amazing, but I really don't think that a, uh, a stadium full of young people were screaming her name because she has a great personal story. She was asked to be there because she was a liberal cabinet minister. And so to me, it's not so much about charities, it's about lobbying. What the Kielbergers were doing were creating these relationships of lobbying and they knew the lobbying act really well and they had a bunch of really interesting personal interpretations they said that they didn't have to register as lobbyists because they the Kielbergers were just volunteers uh, they said they didn't have to register to lobby because it didn't meet this 20 percent threshold but they had a director of government relations yeah and then they were hiring for a manager of government relations so if they weren't doing that much government relations, why did they need two positions for it? And obviously, uh, if they'd followed the Lobbying Act, and, and I have to say, you know, Minister or Commissioner Dion has been all over this, but I have written to the, the new lobbying commissioner. We've heard crickets from her. Um, our previous lobbying commissioner, Commissioner Shepard, she was on top of issues. She was proactive. Uh, I don't know if uh, the new lobbying commissioner even thinks this warrants an investigation. If this doesn't warrant an investigation into lobbying, then why do we have the act? 
Uh, very interesting question. I thought the same thing. You have somebody that you've hired, presumably with a good salary, just to do government relations, and you don't think you're a lobbyist. That's really interesting. I'd like to get back to something that I mentioned earlier, and it sounds like this situation might be even more complicated. But Mark Bloomberg, do you see at least reverberations of what we see in a lot of charities, founder syndrome, somebody founds a charity, it becomes very successful, but they kind of see it as they can't separate the charity and themselves, and therein lies big trouble. Yeah, no, I've written about that topic. It's an interesting one. There's nothing wrong with founding a charity, otherwise we wouldn't have any new charities. And often it is one or two people who have the impetus and push hard to create a charity. Um, but there's a few issues here. One is, um, and one of the more difficult things is, um, it's not founder syndrome isn't about having a founder found a charity. It's about a founder basically sticking around too long or maybe doing things that they shouldn't be doing, uh, things like that. So I think that it's often an issue and it's a difficulty, but many founders have, you know, after five or 10 years, for example, as a group has become a lot more complicated, sophisticated, larger, they will bring in professionals who will take care of things and their involvement will be far less. In fact, maybe they'll come out to the AGM and, you know, give a five minute presentation or something. In this case, it's not so much that they were founders. They were actually, I think they use the term ambassador and other terms. Um, but really very involved with running this organization. And I think that if a judge looked at it, um, they would say, in fact, that, uh, you know, maybe even they're quasi-directors or uh, something along that line. But clearly, they're very senior officers in the organization who, in my mind, would have fiduciary duties to do certain things. So um, my main concern is just that um, it's that uh, the board itself is not uh, a particularly um, real board that uh, is particularly actively engaged, it appears. Um, and uh, so these two individuals have uh, continued to, to sort of run things. And when I looked at what was put out yesterday about this endowment and things and that they'll, they're leaving, but they'll continue on while the real estate is being sold and that could take years to do, um, it didn't give me any great feeling that um, there's really any change um, happening really. Um, the fact is most of their programs are shut down anyway, either because of COVID or for other reasons. So uh, this is a bit of a non-announcement, but it's a good thing to, uh, put out there if you're trying to deflect and uh, trying to have people leave the story because uh, after all uh, now the, the charity shut down so what is there to talk about sort of thing so I viewed it as a bit of a non-announcement well e- exactly we knew that they were laying off lots of people we we knew that uh, things were kind of dormant and again you know uh, going back to that original thing where it's the founders that fired the chairman of the board that uh, that should not be happening. Okay. Well, they or are Mark, the founding sorry. members, and they, that's their role, not as founders, but as members. And they, as those two founding members, uh, do get to determine who's on the board. You can read their bylaws. We've got them up on our website if you want. And it sets out quite clearly that these two people really can essentially fire the board at any point. And, and by the way, there are times when it's perfectly appropriate for, an, uh, for, uh, for example, an organization could be the sole member, um, and it's like you have a subsidiary entity, and they can and replace the board. Um, it's just, it's more about the individuals, what they're actually doing that is creating the problem. It's not a concept of, oh, if you have a founder, that's necessarily bad. Um, it can be, if they overstay their, uh, their welcome, if you will, that it can be problematic uh, in some cases. And just back to that issue you raised about the money moving to the U.S., um, you can't just take from a Canadian charity, you know, 10 or 20 or $30 million and move it to the U.S. Um, 
but I would also concur with Kate's view that, uh, and I think uh, they maybe should talk to Conrad Black about it, but, you know, the fact is the U.S. is a much more aggressive regulatory um, area in that you have about 30, 35 attorney generals who have um, some interest in charities, and if they want to become governor, there's nothing like going off to a charity to, uh, to, to you know, show that they can do what they do and get them a lot of media attention. So, in fact, um, I agree with Kate's sort of very cozy situation here in Canada, the U.S. is much more complicated. So I don't actually take from what they're saying that they're actually going to move the funds out of Canada. I think, in fact, they're just going to uh, probably, they could, I mean, there's about 200 things they could do, but one of them is just keep the money in. We charity not have employees, but basically dole out the money. And because it'll be cash and investments, I think one will need to watch more carefully um, unless it's very clear that it's being handled by a completely different uh, respected group. You know, if they gave the funds to um, a United Way or some other large organization that doesn't international development that has its proper governance structures in place, then I think we could feel a little more comfortable that the things will be done right. Okay. Charlie Angus, do you agree that this announcement was basically an attempt to de- deflect attention? I, I think that they were in deep financial trouble and they were going to have to do something. Uh, I think maybe they're trying to outrun a CRA um, investigation. I think there's obvious, so many questions that have been raised about the uh, the, the 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 murky lines in the charitable work, their political work, and their for-profit work. Uh, I I don't see how they would have escaped that kind of investigation. Um, but again, like they set up the the We Foundation. The money never was going to go to the We Charity. People kept talking about them as a charity and the good work they were doing, but they'd actually set up the shell company, We Foundation. Um, and when I looked at their, uh, um, you know, their founding documents, it said it was to handle their real estate assets. When I asked the Kielbergers about a holding company, uh, a shell company that would hold their real estate assets, they were adamant that it had nothing to do with real estate. They argued and argued and argued with me on the point. But it's like, so what was this shell foundation? And again, overseeing it, it seems that the directors are the people who work for we. So why would the government have signed a deal that would have been upwards of $900 million with a shell corporation. We've asked senior administrative staff, and peop- the line we kept getting back was, well, it was we, we really knew them, we, you know, they, they, the sense that because it was we as a charity and that they'd done good work, that they were signing it with just good and ho- uh, hopeful intentions, but it was a shell company. And so, I, you know, I, I asked the listeners, it, you know, imagine if Red Cross came to a parliamentary committee and we asked Red Cross how they signed the deal. Red Cross would answer straight up. If we said, why did you set up a Red Cross holding company with no assets? They, I mean, that would be a ridiculous question. It wouldn't happen. We'd know who we were dealing with. We'd know the answers. It would be straightforward. But with the Kielbergers, it felt like we were always, uh, it was a constant shell game of getting so specific on the question to try and get a specific answer, and we still weren't getting these answers. It's it's bizarrely complex, and it should never have been for a charity. And, you know, up until yesterday, including yesterday, they kept saying that uh, the $43.5 million minimum that they were supposed to earn from this, that there was, quote, no opportunity for profit in that. And uh, they said they, they ate, they took a loss of $5 million on this. I mean, you know, to me, I find it very hard to believe those things. Well, if you read the 5,000 pages worth of documents... 
the money was there all over the place. They were they were to be paid two million dollars to set to set up a government website. Um, the overhead fees looked to be between ten and fifteen percent. That's pretty high. Um, there was money for real uh, for for rental space. So is that the real estate holdings? They claimed that they were going to take ten thousand students themselves. Um, and so the government was very, oh, that's halfway of what we need. If we have, if our target is 20,000, we is going to take 10,000 students. And then when they were asked later about that in the documents, they start hemming and hawing and saying they'll find other organizations. I mean, were they going to take the 10,000 students and not get extra fees on top of that to prepare, you know, the courses, the online stuff? The money was there at every step of the way, and it was going to be a very good payout for them. Hmm. Um, Mark, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I would say that if you read the agreement uh, that was with We Charity Foundation, um, obviously it depends on the, the numbers, but um, if uh, everyone was paid out the full um, $5,000 or so that uh, you know they could get, then it's a certain thing. But if everyone was paid out just 1000 which obviously wouldn't happen, but I'm just saying hypothetically speaking, they actually could be getting paid more than the students were being paid. The amounts that they would have received would have been greater than the amounts that the students themselves would have been paid. So it all depends on the numbers. But one thing they did say at committee was that they um, would not have been able to even do the, the numbers, which was 100,000 that were suggested that they were aiming on for around, I think they said, two or 300 million out of the um, you know, 543 million. So even by that account, they couldn't do what was being contracted to them at all. Um, and uh, this uh, one of the things that I think many in the charity sector found most offensive about this whole scandal was just a statement by Trudeau that they're the only charity in Canada who could do this. And, I mean, I'm looking at, at lots of amazing charities in this country that do amazing things, and they picked this one organization. Um, and that is, so that is deeply offensive to say, you know, this is the only group. No other group can handle um, an online volunteer system or, or something along those lines. So it's very... And remember, they didn't even have the system. All the stuff had to be created. <laughs> so um, it was uh, it was very disappointing. On the plus side, uh, Trudeau did cancel it very quickly. That's a good thing. Um, but we haven't seen any sort of real apology from any of the parties involved or any real uh, contrition, really, that what they did was wrong. Um, and so, unfortunately, I think that will also be a problem in terms of moving forward um, if the people are not prepared to admit mistakes and some of their uh, supporters are basically saying nothing happened here, there was nothing wrong, there's no problem. It then just continues the cycle, and this could go on for another you know, month uh, if, uh, if there is no real uh, disclosure about what actually happened and also a proper, um, you know, uh, sort of apology from the government as to how this was handled, because it does seem to be uh, inappropriate in the way it was done. Okay, well, uh, I think that just about sums it up, and we are totally out of time now. Uh, I'm sure we will be revisiting this. I, I think that there's a lot more to it. In the meantime, thank you so much, Kate Bain, Charlie Angus, and Mark Bloomberg. Really appreciate your insight. Thank, Thank you, very you much. so much. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.